0: Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. North Korea just detonated the most powerful nuclear weapon it's ever tested, one 10 times as powerful as what the U.S. used in Hiroshima. So we're going to talk about the nuclear standoff with North Korea, but from a different angle. We're going to talk about the North Korean economy, and more specifically, if the U.S. could hammer that economy hard enough with sanctions, then North Korea might stop testing these kind of weapons. And we're talking about it because that's exactly what the Trump administration wants to do. To
1: the members of the Security Council, I must say, enough is enough. Only the strongest sanctions will enable us to resolve this problem through diplomacy. The United States will look at every country that does business with North Korea as a country that is giving aid to their reckless and dangerous nuclear intentions.
0: So that was the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley. Also rumored to be replacing potentially soon my favorite Secretary of State, Mr. Charisma, Rex Tillerson. But there were a couple of things in there that I wanted to tease out. The first was the emptiness of part of the threat, which was we're going to cut off ties to any country doing trade with North Korea, which would mean cutting off all of our ties to China.
2: And Russia. Which is
0: not going to happen, obviously. But what I want us to dig into a little bit this week, because I think it doesn't often get as much attention as it should, is North Korea's actual economy. You know, what we hear of North Korea is it has no electricity. It's people are all starving. We don't think about the fact that people there do have cell phones. I mean, not many of them, but they do. There are traffic jams in Pyongyang because there are enough cars for that to happen. There is an economy. And I want us to talk a bit about what that economy looks like and where it's weak, where it's strong, in part because it then gets to the big question, which is, is the economy important enough to the country? Is it strong enough in any way that sanctions could possibly work? You know, if we keep ending up at the point, even with Donald Trump, set aside the fire and fury stuff of, we will sanction North Korea. That's our tool. Is that ever possibly going to work when it
2: has not ever worked before? So, North Korea does have an economy, right? It's a planned economy centrally, but increasingly in the past few years, the government has devolved responsibility to individual citizens and allowed there to be a degree, a very small degree, but a degree of private enterprise. And Kim Jong-un, since taking power, has really emphasized this kind of economic reform and delivering growth. And... In the past year, North Korean economy grew 3.7%, which is the fastest it's grown since 1999. Uh, So there's real economic growth there. Now, it's from a very low baseline because the planned economy is a disaster for reasons we can talk about. So it's getting better from from a bad situation. This doesn't mean the fact that the economy is growing. does not mean it's vulnerable to sanctions. The basic problem with sanctions is that you need a trading partner to stop trading with them, which means mostly China and to a lesser extent Russia, which are major parts. And and South Korea does some trade with North Korea too. You would need a massive sanctions regime, one that rogue actors who have no interest in complying with these sanctions would go along with. So just because the economy is growing doesn't mean you've solved the political problem of how do you get a country like China to abandon all ties with North Korea.
1: Definitely coordinating sanctions is probably the biggest difficulty that we've had, um, even through the, the six-party talks. It's um, kind of basically an idea to try to get um, broader coordination on sanctions rather than the U.S. just going it unilaterally. Um, there are also lots of other problems um, just beyond like the China issue, um, although that is a huge piece of it. Um, the North Korean economy also is based in large part on illicit transactions, the regime itself more specifically, and they have their own basically outside sources of income. The regime, uh, the party itself, and then Kim Jong-un himself, there are two separate kind of bureaus that are within the the central committee of the party that are actually specifically dedicated to maintaining illicit funding streams, so basically slush funds for both the party and for Kim Jong-un himself. So the problem is, when you talk about sanctions, the issue is that the literature, basically, the academic literature that studies sanctions—so um, Marcus Nolan and Stephen Haggard um, from the Peterson Institute of International Economics here in Washington wrote a book, uh, came out this year, called Hard Targets. The entire thing is looking at the political economy of North Korea and whether or not sanctions have worked and how they could work better. And they did a literature review, and they basically found that while the literature, the academic literature is mixed in terms of how sanctions work, how well they work, the most robust finding was basically that the type of regime that you're sanctioning matters. And specifically when you have an authoritarian regime where power is really tightly centralized in a small constituency group, so in North Korea's case, the military, essentially, um, parts of the party, and then Kim Jong-un and his family members himself. And when you couple that with massive repression and the ability to do um, massive state repression essentially transfer the costs to the population, that sanctions are almost impossible to work unless you have very, very, very specific targeted sanctions. And so it's really, really difficult because of that. You have these outside funding streams that means that Even when you target countries with sanctions, you target North Korea with sanctions, you're basically not going to end up disrupting most of their economy.
0: So There's a lot in there that's fascinating. And when we were sitting in the office yesterday during the torrential rainstorm that was barraging D.C. and having a chance to kind of talk about this stuff to distract us from the apocalypse, someone made the joke, and it's both funny but also kind of has a serious point— We've sanctioned North Korea for a decade. Kim Jong-un is not someone who looks like he's missing many meals. He's just getting kind of fatter and fatter and fatter.
2: Hey, let not fat shame Kim Jong-un or anyone I, else.
0: The reason I mention it is not to fat shame. It's sanctions work to a degree if you're a country where the leadership feels accountable to the people. If you're a country that doesn't, the leadership will be fine. They are always fine. This is true in Iraq under Saddam. This is true Iran to the nuclear talks. It's true now. You can sanction the country, but unless the leaders feel the pain, Jen, like you're saying, they don't work. And I think in North Korea, you have not just repression, but also a North Korean country that has not known anything other than the Kim family and really buys in, in some ways, the propaganda. They, it's not that they're looking at him with fury about why are you still eating when we, the people, are suffering. To some degree, it's always hard to pull a country as, nut, as nutty as North Korea. But from outside indications, it does appear as much of the, as if much of the country buys the propaganda of the North Korean government. And they buy the idea that They're all in it together as compared to feeling like, why are we suffering because of your bad decisions?
1: It actually goes to another kind of problem with economic sanctions is that in a case like this, specifically with North Korea, sanctions can actually end up having a perverse effect. It can actually have the reverse kind of impact where the leadership can actually use that as kind of a rally around the flag effect. So it offers this external kind of threat, this external enemy like, look, these, you know, these evil imperialists are sanctioning us. They want to destroy us. Like I've been telling you for years, like the Kim family's been telling you for decades, you know, we are your protection against this. We can stand up. We can be self-reliant. We can fight back. And it also helps to kind of distract from maybe domestic unrest or, you know, domestic discontentment. from people at home, you can kind of refocus against this external enemy. So in some ways, sanctions can actually bolster the regime, which is the exact opposite of what we're trying to do.
2: Now, the other thing to note, so there's there a small note in what Yoki said that I disagreed with that I think is important to tease out, which is that while elites will do fine in a certain sense, the reason that some sanctions work is because they deny elites privileges and make them unhappy. So take Russia as an example. The wealthy oligarchs in Russia like to travel around the world. They like to buy up real estate in places like London and generally enjoy an international jet-setting lifestyle. When you put sanctions that limit their travel or their ability to spend state money that they've essentially stolen from the Russian state or from major businesses— They get really mad, and that actually does generate political pressure on the government to change its behavior because they're accountable to these people. The elites in society really could overthrow them, so someone like Putin might conceivably feel pressure to change his behavior. That
1: is the constituency that that Russia, that Putin is worried about, that he has to answer to,
2: absolutely. but in North Korea, you don't have an elite that has the same kind of international ties outside of China, pretty much. Right? They don't travel to the United States. When Kim Jong-un went to school in, I believe it's Switzerland, he had a fake name because they didn't want to be associated with the North Korean elite, uh, or at least they didn't want to be associated with the Kim family. And the point is that North Korea's insularity and the insularity of its leadership class makes it very difficult to target for sanctions in the way that a country like Russia or Iran, which is much more integrated into the global economy, is.
1: So there's also another, um, and I absolutely agree, I I mean, especially when we're talking about the insularity of the regime and their lack of foreign travel, bear in mind that Kim Jong-un was once in really big trouble with his dad for trying to sneak to Disneyland, to sneak out of the country using a fake passport to (laughs) go to Disneyland. (laughs) Yeah. So he wasn't even like, he's the son of the leader and he wasn't even allowed to leave to go to Disneyland, which means that the the other party elite are are certainly not going to be allowed to just go, you know, jet setting around. But Um, I think it's also important to note, and this is something that kind of gets overlooked a lot in in the conversation about sanctions, even if we were talking about, you know, if China were to kind of follow through on sanctioning certain companies and and U.N. sanctions specifically. So Nikki Haley, we heard that quote, you know, talking about we need to have, you know, harsher sanctions. The problem is that the majority, vast, vast majority of companies, of enterprises are all state-owned. They're all state-run. They're all run by the regime. So what they routinely do, and we've seen this over and over again, is that when the UN issues a list of sanctions, so like a list of businesses or state-run enterprises uh, that are going to be sanctioned, they change the name of the, of the institution and they restructure it. So they break it up and essentially, you know, carve it up into smaller pieces. So if there's like a giant conglomerate, um, they'll break up like the steel production into one kind of separate company and rename it. And they'll put it under the control, like nominal control, of a private citizen who is probably going to be someone in the Kim family or a really close party member. But the state still runs it. It's just a way to get around sanctions. So they do this literally every single time. They just rename things and shift the cards around, and the sanctions no longer matter because the problem is that sanctions, especially when we're talking about in the international system, but even U.S. sanctions, passing these kinds of things— like there's a bureaucracy, right? There's it takes a little bit of time to like identify the correct businesses, and you have to go through the process. And they're a lot faster than we are, so they essentially just reshuffle the deck and move right along with their with their business.
2: So I want to ask us sort of as a poll, a roundtable: Does anyone here think that more sanctions of any kind being considered that are plausible could affect the North Korean regime's nuclear program?
0: I. Don't unless and until China agrees to cut off oil. Right now, almost all of North Korean oil comes from China. It's roughly 500,000 crude barrels a year. An interesting stat, North Korea uses, I read this thing in Bloomberg, North Korea uses as much oil all year as the U.S. East Coast uses in a single day, which is like an incredible reminder still of how impoverished this country is. But North Korea, and this is something Janet built off a point you made earlier, North Korea is willing to devote so much money, so much of its money to its nuclear program. Two stats I came across that were really fascinating. So GDP, the portion of a, a nation's GDP, so basically its overall economy that goes to defense, the U.S. It hovers between 25 and 4%. In North Korea, it hovers between 25% and a third. So it's a huge percentage of its overall economy goes to defense. Its nuclear program, some of the estimates, the best estimates from the South Korean government are that it's spent three billion dollars towards its nuclear program so north korea as a country it's almost like sparta like they're willing to just take the money they have as little of it as they have and put it towards defense and nuclear programs all of which gets back to your question of until you figure out a way to make that money harder to get much harder to get i don't think they will work
1: so i don't actually think that they're going to give up their nuclear re- weapons regardless of what we do um I think Zach, you wrote a great piece on this recently that
2: will hopefully be coming out soon
1: that will hopefully be coming out soon on vox.com that's vox.com <laughs> but a, a great piece basically the case for for letting North Korea keep its nuclear weapons and basically the you know the argument that you make is let me just tell you about it because you, you made big arguments let me just <laughs> I'm gonna Jen <laughs> explain some stuff to you real quick. The argument that Zach makes is and this is based on you know multiple interviews with scholars and, and analysts and experts on this. It's not just Zach freewheeling it here. Um, although he does know a lot about North Korea. The basic argument is that because what nuclear weapons represent for the Kim regime, which is basically survival stability, um, you know, they looked around at Muammar Gaddafi's regime in Libya, at, you know, Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq, and said, hey, you know, if you have nuclear weapons, then the U.S. won't topple you. You know, you look at Iran, that's, they don't have nuclear weapons, but we also haven't Thought regime change there, Iran has this kind of similar thinking, and in, in some ways, especially you know after the 2003 invasion of Iraq, North Korea was on that list of the Axis of Evil, and so it was kind of like, oh great, well if we get nukes, then it essentially like dramatically raises the cost of you know the U.S. wanting to get into a conflict with North Korea because now you have two nuclear armed powers. So essentially, the idea is that that nukes are basically like the biggest single protector that the Kim regime has to make sure that they don't get overthrown um, externally. Which is, you know, goes to say that, like, even if they were to suffer, you know, dramatic economic sanctions, and, you know, even, like Yoki said, like the stopping Chinese oil, um, also coal exports. So the biggest, probably arguably the biggest uh, natural resource that North Korea has is coal. And so when, uh, when China cuts off its imports, so making North Korea not allowed to export their coal. That's also a huge chunk of their economy. But, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to want to give up their nuclear weapons, right? You have to remember that this is a regime that it's not the same exact regime, right? It's its the son of, of Kim Jong-il um, and then, you know, Kim Il-sung before him. But this is a regime that during the 1990s survived a famine, right? Like, they survived a massive famine that killed between 600,000 and 1 million of their own people, and the regime survived. They have a lot of coping mechanisms. They have a lot of ways of staying in power. And, you know, thinking that just some tightening some sanctions is going to be the thing that breaks them and brings them to the table, I think, is is wildly incorrect.
2: Well, that fits really nicely with what Yoki was talking about in terms of the kind of Spartan analogy. Right? In North Korea, that's called the Songun policy, the military first policy. And it, and it means that resources, when the state gets them— should be devoted to the military before it goes to any other citizens. And interestingly, it did that during the famine when its citizens were starving. Instead of trying to prevent people from dying, which you think would be the priority of a government just in terms of legitimacy, like surviving and and preventing a popular uprising, that – It would do, you know, it would try to prevent suffering, but it didn't. It tried to strengthen the military, and there are two reasons for that. The first is that the military is the thing most likely to overthrow the Kim regime if there were to be any threat. And the second is that its propaganda to the rest of the public focuses very heavily on military prowess and even casts suffering on the part of the North Korean people as necessary to preserve the Kim regime and its strength and protect the North Korean people against these external threats. So military first isn't just incidental. It's a key part of the North Korean regime's propaganda to its own people and one that a lot of them, as we've talked about a little bit, actually believe. So when they're spending a bunch of money on nuclear weapons and other people are suffering economically— that's par for the course. In fact, that's the design of the state.
1: So actually, yeah, I totally agree. Um there's actually a, a it's not a new policy it doesn't replace the Songun military first policy, but in 2013 the party basically rolled out a new policy. It's the Byungjin line, that's what they call it. Um and it's essentially like means parallel. So it's it's a new policy of pursuing dual tracks, parallel tracks of economic development on one hand and a robust nuclear weapons program on the other. So It's still absolutely like focusing on military prowess and the nuclear weapons program. But the thing is that the way they frame it now, a lot of times, especially after you see this a lot after a missile test and, and the nuclear test, is that they actually frame their nuclear weapons development as a signal of their economic growth. So they actually say, look, look how well we're doing in advancing science and technology and engineering. These are all things that are going to help our economy, right? This is what you do when you're a serious economy. You know, look at the United States. Look at China, right? They have these massive technological advantages. Well, that's what we're doing, guys. So it's okay. So look at these gray missile tests. So they actually basically convince the people that it's, it's also—I mean, and Partially, it could be true, right? Technology does filter down into other sectors of the economy. I don't know how accurate that is in terms of North Korea. But, I mean, the fact is that they also portray it as not two different things. It's not either we do the military or we do the economy. It's a dual track. And it's a really smart way of framing things because it's not like, oh, if we didn't have, you know, it's not the guns or butter, right? It's not like if we didn't have these weapons, then we would have more food. It's, look, this is helping us build our economy so that we all get better. And it's really smart.
0: And there's also, I think it's exactly right. It's harder to measure, but there's also just the prestige factor. In Pakistan, a kind of major part of the propaganda, and this was true to a lesser degree in Iran, because Pakistan obviously admits to nuclear weapons and Iran said it wasn't ever trying to get them. But in Pakistan, it was like a national pride thing. It's like, look, we have done what these big, big, big global powers have done. We are a country on par with those other countries. And that's in a country in Pakistan that actually knows about other countries. You know, internet is relatively free, internet's relatively widespread, as compared to North Korea, where the intranet is what's used for the most part. It's controlled by the government. By some estimates, there are 28 websites you can go to, most of which are about recipes and sports. So it's not the internet. You can't see the outside the country stuff. What
2: you sports do they play in North Korea? Does anyone know?
0: Soccer. Okay, it's all soccer. Hmm. Um, although Pro- Kim, probably Kim, some
1: badminton. I
0: mean, Kim Jong Un loves basketball. Yeah, that's as, right. I did know that. As we know from that gloriously, gloriously funny Seth Rogen movie, it's not gloriously funny, but it is interesting all the same that you have a country that doesn't really know about the outside world, but does know that if you have a nuclear weapon, you're a serious player. So I think you know they have the propaganda of saying nukes help us develop our economy and the propaganda of saying nukes mean we are a really serious power. One thing that's fascinating to me about North Korea, when we were talking about stats and, and the economy and, and the growth of it or what it spends on defense, is just how little money it actually is. So like percentages are interesting, right? It's an interesting percentage to say that they spend a quarter of their GDP on their defense programs as compared to the U.S. that spends like 3 or 4%. But here is a raw number on that, which I found amazing. So... North Korea, again, is estimated to have spent somewhere about $3 billion on its nuclear program. The USS Gerald Ford, which is the newest aircraft carrier that the Navy is developing, will cost $8.5 billion minimum. So we are spending double on a single aircraft carrier what they've spent in totality on their nuclear program. Our aircraft carrier will have some value. Their nuclear program has completely upended geopolitics for an entire part of the world and possibly will lead to war with the United States. And it's just fascinating to realize, like, how little money you need to spend if you're an impoverished country to get that kind of effect as compared to what we spend here. Another one, just a stat, this was like stat week, I think, for all of us. We were just looking at numbers and kind of feeling really good about that. But another one that I found totally interesting, we were talking, Zach, you made the point about economic growth. Reuters had a story this summer about economic growth having exploded, as you said, roughly 3.7%, 3.9%. But per capita gross national income, which is a different measure. So it's not the total economic output, but what a person could spend in that country was also up to one a little bit over a thousand dollars, which sounds great, but that is five percent of what it is in South Korea. So again, you've got this like percentage-wise. Hey, this sounds great; their economy is booming. And then you look at wait, holy hell, it's five percent of its neighbor.
2: A thousand dollars as a GDP per capita is quite poor by international standards. But again, it's
0: not that wasn't GDP. That was gross national uh, income, n- not GDP. So this was what a, what an average person can spend as compared to. GDP.
1: So I just want to um, make a quick point when we're talking about when any of us say, you know, offer statistics about North Korea's economy, these all have to come with a massive caveat that these are estimates that normally come from the best guesses of South Korean think tanks and the South Korean government um, based on the publicly available data they can figure out from trade with countries like China, from trade with you know South Korea, had a special economic zone in North Korea um, based on very, very limited amount of data. So Marcus Noland, uh, whose work I cited earlier in his book, Hard Targets, had a great quote that I saw recently where he said, um, I don't believe any datum, and he said datum because the singular of data, because of course he did. Um, I don't believe any datum at coming out of North Korea that has a decimal point in it. And if you see one, that it's probably wrong, which is not to say that any of these estimates are wrong, but it's just to say that these are very squishy numbers here. So in terms of going back and forth on, on which numbers are, are correct, the broad kind of point here is that North Korea is tremendously poor. And and just to remind people who might not know this, right after the Korean War, North Korea was one of the strongest, if not the strongest, economies in the East Asian continent. So it was way uh, advanced of South Korea. They had a robust economy. And then you had like the kind of institution of the centrally planned, you know, Stalinist kind of collectivization of farms and all of that, the centrally planned economy that basically shot it all to shit. Um, It's a technical term. Um, And so, you know, it's just really interesting to see kind of what's happened. And when we talk about, I think it's also important, I kind of want to drill down with you guys about like the actual economy. Can we talk about the North Korean economy? When we talk about they've had growth. I think it's important to talk about like what we really mean, like what their economy is doing and, you know, where this kind of this economic reform as such is coming from. So I think it's really important to talk about like, Zach, you mentioned earlier That you know, Kim Jong Un has kind of allowed the government to devolve some um, some control over farms. So they basically shut down most of the collectivized farms and redistributed the the control of farmland to individual families. They call them individual work units because that's the most stolidest way you could come up with to call a family. Um, But they let them now farm and keep somewhere between thirty to seventy percent of what they what they reap, right? So you have kind of better incentives. You have you know. Farming just kind of exploded. You also have these, these unofficial markets that have now become official, but these informal market stalls where people would, you know, smuggle in goods and they would trade and they would set up these markets that were not controlled by the state. And eventually they have become kind of part and parcel of the government. They figured out a way to essentially tax these people and you have to get a license to now have a market stall. But, you know, these are really simple. I mean, we're talking like The biggest economic, you know, one of the biggest economic developments in the 2000s for North Korea was that they codified the concept of private property, like, in their law. Like, that's staggering, right? Like, the concept of private ownership. Like, that was one of the biggest things, and that was just in the mid-2000s.
2: Well, that's why, like, you had for a very long time in North Korea a bunch of buildings and factories that would be constructed that nobody lives in, right? That happens in China now, and we're sort of used to it. But it's an inevitable byproduct of a planned economy when nobody owns anything and the government dictates where money goes because the government doesn't have enough information to know exactly what people need. That's why markets are really good. This is the classic baseline case for a free market. In North Korea, they also do some more interesting things now. Two of the biggest growth sectors have been mining, which we've talked about a bit, and industry, in the sense of manufacturing – and what they do, one of the things they do in industry is make clothes with Chinese materials. They then stitch made in China on them and sell them to foreign markets. And what this does is sort of a twofold thing first, it allows them to get money around. Uh, in the sense of getting foreign capital, which they desperately need in order to buy things because people don't yeah. really take North Korean money. Hard foreign currency is, like, key. And that's that's part one. Uh, part two is it allows them to build up an actual industrial capacity. And that this is how South Korea grew to begin with, low-cost manufacturing, because North Korea is very poor and stuff's controlled by the government for the most part. Uh, manufacturing costs are very low.
1: I'm really glad you brought up the the issue of like sewing the made in China uh, kind of labels on things. So that actually happens also not from the North Korean side, but on the Chinese side. So there are tons of goods there. It's entirely likely that you have something in your home or in your office that was potentially made in North Korea. So tons of goods, both licit and illicit are made in North Korea, and they basically, either legally or illegally, will kind of let that slide, depending on, it's probably not much happens in North Korea that the regime doesn't know about. But they basically are sent over the border and then are repackaged in China and sold as Chinese-made goods. So all kinds of stuff, right? And then we also, so that's like the kind of above board, if you want to call it, like trade. And then they also have like the whole illicit market. So uh, endangered species that like you're not allowed to trade on the international market because like of course you're not. um North Korea is like whatever we're like gonna do what? that. So like mushrooms, there's a species of pine mushroom that is really popular in Japan. That North Korea actually um, since they're they're matsutake mushrooms um or pine mushrooms, I guess we call them here. Um, so they. I, export- I'm, I'm
0: not sure any of us call them <laughs> pine mushroom or matsutake. Oh, like, yeah, or I don't know what eat you're talking illegal about. Illegal North Korean mushrooms,
2: right? Like, I don't know know who does
1: are. Japan? <laughs> So the Japanese police like did a, a recently did like a big raid on this and there were like tens of thousands of dollars in illegal mushrooms and that's just one thing there's also here's a really interesting thing that I don't think a lot of people know about so one of North Korea's kind of moderate uh cash flows comes from building ridiculous monuments in Africa so there is an art. Studio, let's call it an art factory, is probably more accurate. It's the Mansudae Art Studio. And by the way, there's a website in English. It's the official Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the official North Korean English language website for their art studio that you can go to. It is Mansude, Mansudae, M A N S U D A E art I highly recommend it. It's hilarious. But So it started back in, like, the 1950s, right, uh, to make these big kind of Stalinist, like, monuments to celebrate the Kim family. And then they eventually kind of branched out to make kind of other monuments to communism and stuff, you know, especially um, during the Cold War to, like, other similar countries. But starting in the early 2000s, they've decided to reach out to Africa. And it's actually kind of staggering. So um, they're estimated to have earned tens of millions of dollars this way. They have built— They have provided construction services building these massive monuments in countries including Senegal, Angola, Chad, Democratic Republic of Congo, Ethiopia, Benin, Togo, Equatorial Guinea, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and more. And the most famous one is the African Renaissance Monument in Senegal, in Dakar. It was dedicated in 2010. I highly recommend Googling it. Um, So North Korea made this for them. It's a massive—I think it's believed to be the tallest statue in Africa— It's um, over 160 feet. It's a solid bronze statue, and it's just hilarious. It's like this vaguely Stalinist, like, there's a man holding up a child, and there's, like, a woman, and it, like, towers over everything. That's bizarre. But there's actually a point in terms of when we're talking about going back to sanctions, you know, Nikki Haley, you know, we talk about, you know, heard her quotes talking about targeting countries who trade with them. There are dozens and dozens of countries that actually do business with North Korea. They built a freaking basketball stadium in the Congo. They built the presidential palace in Namibia. Like, they do all this. And and the way they do it is it's really hard to target with sanctions because they do this mostly through their embassies. So North Korea, you know, we like to think of it as this black box, right? But, you know, just because that we don't have an embassy there, and they don't have one here, doesn't mean that they don't have international relations with lots of other countries, and they do. Um, they even have a freaking trade office in Zimbabwe, like an official North Korean trade office where you can go. But the problem is, like, because of that, you know, they do it under this diplomatic cover, but they do all these deals, and it's really, really hard to target with sanctions. So it's never just as simple as, well, we need to cut off sanctions, and you countries need to stop doing business. Like, are we going to sanction, like, the Mansuday art studio? Maybe, I guess. But, like, these are, like— underground cash deals that are being done to build monuments in small countries in Africa, that still brings in tens of millions of dollars for the regime. How do you stop
0: that? I mean, I, yeah, I definitely, when we are done recording this, we'll go look up it's the so North Korean statues. But part of what that that highlights, beyond the gloriousness of pine mushroom, illegal pine <laughs> mushroom exports... It's a thing, it's I'm like, just saying. It's easy to talk about North Korea, and you know, we do, other people do, as some of the stuff like these grand geopolitical questions, you know, so when people say, "Why won't China do more?" You know, we've talked about this in, in other episodes, but part of it is a fear that if North Korea collapses, you'll have a unified Korea right on its border, controlled by not controlled by the U.S. but influenced by the U.S. If North Korea collapses, there'll be this giant refugee flow into China. So there are these like giant grand geopolitical questions. But then, you know, Jen, to your to the beginning of that, your, your point, China also just gets little bits of money. Right? So like, apart from what China does or doesn't want as a country, what, and when we say that, of course, what we mean is Chinese leadership in Beijing beyond what it wants in terms of grand diplomacy, you've just got small-scale Chinese factories that want to be able to re- resell North Korean-made goods because they're cheaper. And it, it just always comes back to money. And I, I know that's kind of an obvious point in some ways, but it can get lost. I think when we're talking about a black-box country, when we're talking about a country that has a nuclear program that's terrifying, so much of it ultimately at the end of the day is money— and, you know, Zach, a point you were making yesterday when we were talking about what we would talk about today, if we're going to get meta for one second, was Kim Jong-un. That, on the one hand, he's conducted more nuclear tests just in the last couple of years than his father did in his entire lifetime. He is getting more and more provocative. He's clearly just going to test Trump as far as he can, as many times as he can. But you made this point yesterday that as he's doing that, he also is liberalizing his economy to a kind of unprecedented degree. And that paradox is just sort of fascinating.
2: Well, I heard a quote. From a North Korean, uh, someone who was traveling there and then spoke to ordinary people about the different Kim families. It was really revealing on this point. The person said Kim Il sung made us ideologically strong, Kim Jong il made us militarily strong, and Kim Jong un is making us economically strong. And the sense, and this appears to be a widely shared perception among the North Korean people, that Kim is not abandoning the policies of his father and grandfather but building on them and the economic development is part and parcel of this overall attempt to build a better and secure north korea right so That's why there's such an emphasis on military tests and belligerence at the same time as there's economic development. there's also been a pretty harsh crackdown on free speech even by North Korean standards under Kim Jong-un, is he needs to show that there is continuity with the overall ideological architecture of the regime, which is focused on military and the idea that the United States and South Korea are imperialist threats, the ideological and military pieces that's, quote, talked about— while at the same time blazing an economic path that is very different than what you saw under the past two Kims. So it's it seems like a paradox, but really what it is is an attempt to maintain continuity while also building up another pole or arm of the government's strength. Right,
1: but it's risky, right? Because he has to walk a really fine line because— so one of the reasons that he's gotten around this, because he doesn't want to completely dismantle the entire ideology that the state has been built on and the, you know, the foundation of the regime. And he can't come out and say, like, oh, centrally planned economies are a nightmare. Sorry, we were wrong that a whole time. Turns out we're going to do this other thing. Like, they have to be—he has to be really, really delicate in the way he frames it. Again, going back to the byung line, you know, the dual track of economic development and military development and how that is used to kind of explain away some of the, the spending on the military, that it, it also helps the economy. But another way that he's done this is by essentially leaving most of the laws on the books that make things like, you know, uh, cross-border trade, especially— Um, illegal, make, you know, private sales um, in these markets. So these markets are now regulated, but there are still tons of informal markets that are built up around them. So if you don't get a pass to be a stall, you know, a a market seller in a stall in one of the formal markets, then you just set up your stall outside the market and you don't have to pay taxes. You don't have to pay the daily fee to the government. Um, But he's left all these laws on the books so that he can change his mind at any time, what he's done is is more subtle. when we talk about liberalization like i think that's i mean it's it's moderate. we're talking like relative to previous north korean regimes. but he what he's done is essentially kind of quietly told officials not to enforce the laws. like don't interfere with private property, don't interfere with private business. Even the ones that are illegal, not just the ones that I've, you know, I've officially made legal. And actually, Kim's father, Kim Jong, uh, Kim Jong Il, actually legalized the markets back in uh, back in the two thousands. So he's essentially been kind of doing this on the down low, and because of that, like it's a quieter, kind of creeping economic opening that still makes sure, you know, one of the lessons that the Kim regime learned after the collapse of the Soviet Union in particular, is that economic reform, you know, and opening up to other countries will bring down your system. Like, that was a lesson that the Kim family took from from that era. And so they're really careful. And that's part of what economic sanctions are trying to do. That's part of what we're trying to do also is to kind of force kind of some economic change and to kind of, you know, maybe empower or disenfranchise people to get them to do more economic opening, maybe empower more liberal, different thinking people. Um, But I think it's really important when we talk about like what Kim has done to not overstate, like he's not doing a dramatic, like it's still mostly state run, almost everything. These are really subtle things, but for North Korea, they're really huge.
0: I think it's also worth noting that we shouldn't underestimate the risk to this because when you have economic liberalization, it isn't just that your economy might become slightly more efficient because you've got Western or other uh, Asian economic experts or business people coming in and knowing what the hell they're doing. It's that usually information does too. And interactions with the outside world, even if they're meant to be over a business deal, are still interactions with the outside world. So if you've got more of your business class, small as it is, traveling overseas to meet their counterparts, more business people from other countries coming to North Korea, you are hearing about other countries, right? It's easier to sort of tell your people one thing about your lifestyle as a country compared to what's happening overseas if they never get to go overseas, or see TV from overseas, or see movies from overseas. So, for all they know, South Korea isn't a wealthy country, and Japan isn't a wealthy country. The United States isn't a wealthy country. That gets much harder if you suddenly have business people
2: going to South Korea and being like, "Holy hell!"
1: But that's why this. he's. That's why they're not doing that. Is for that exact reason.
2: And and it also the another important point about that um, is that it threatens the livelihood of party leaders. Right? If you if you reform too much. This is a problem that China has right now. A lot of their long-running state-owned businesses, they're trying to reform and privatize and create more regulated systems for them. But they're running into opposition because the people who own them, who are part of the government, uh, don't want to give up their control over a major part of the economy. They don't want to give up uh, that level of power. And in North Korea, you have a similar situation, only much more so. So, re- the more you reform, the more you threaten the livelihood of top party leaders. And it's important to remember that we know almost nothing about internal divisions in the North Korean elite. We don't know how much people feel threatened ideologically or personally by liberalization. It's just a very, very difficult thing to get information on. And it's it, it, we always have to keep in mind that other countries have politics, too, that – internal spats and fights really could end up compromising the North Korean government and may already be. We just don't know.
1: One thing we do know is that, and this is another one when we're talking about Kim Kim Jong-un's economic reforms. So, uh, Pak Pong ju uh, was the prime minister. He was ousted in 2007 for pushing market-based reforms. So, Kim Jong-il kicked him out of the government. Um, luckily, he didn't kill him. Uh, he just pushed him out of the government. Which, right, like, that makes sense. Their are internal divisions. You have the actual prime minister, which in North Korea it means nothing. But it's a high-level political party official. It's the most power that, you know, any official, you know, would have is, is very limited in North Korea. But still, he was pushed out because he had a different kind of economic vision for the country and the Kim family said no. Well, Kim Jong-un has now appointed him to oversee the entire economy. So he brought in the guy who was pushing market-based reforms, the guy that his dad kicked out of the government and brought him back in. So that is clear that there are different divisions within even the party itself in terms of, you know, the degree of liberalization. And to go back to to what Yelchi was saying earlier in terms of foreign trade, I think that's one of the the biggest kind of failures of of the North Korean economic story. Um, There has been, like we've been saying, you know, modest kind of low-level... I wouldn't even say liberalization, I'd say marketization um, of the economy. But when it comes to foreign direct investment, when it comes to foreign countries bringing businesses to North Korea, that has been a massive, massive failure. And it's in large part because North Korea is so isolated and doesn't operate in the international system, and it doesn't play by the same rules. So essentially, businesses will try, like Russian businesses have tried, South Korean businesses have tried to go into North Korea and make deals and set up businesses— And they're either completely screwed over and the deal is and they're just like essentially robbed of all of their investment, or you know, it just becomes so tied up in red tape that it's pointless and it goes nowhere. So the the kind of foreign trade side of North Korea is is where we're not seeing this massive liberalization. It's more really subtle kind of domestic marketization that we're seeing. And I think that goes to Yeohi's point about not, you know, wanting to do dramatic change that would, you know, potentially upend the regime.
2: So I guess we're not going to get a North Korean equivalent of the art of the deal anytime soon.
1: Maybe not. Okay.
0: But I, the I, art I, of the nuke. You know, it, it, it is grim, but I do like the fact in some ways that the only way we sometimes know who is out of power or out of sorts with Kim Jong-un is when that person is killed. I mean, it's... It is the most visible possible way of saying you're fired uh, and you've lost your job. And, it, and that just reminds us yet again of not only the secrecy, but also the brutality and also the total lack of political expression, which is a deft and subtle and great way of moving to elsewhere for this week. We're going to talk about Germany. And more specifically, we're going to talk about Angela Merkel. And more specifically, we're going to talk about a tomato thrown at Angela Merkel.
2: So Splat! There you go. I can just be the sound effects guy for the yeah. team now. So just it's to be clear, like that.
1: Th- what we're talking about is Angela Merkel, who is currently campaigning for the upcoming German elections, um, was at a campaign event at which there were demonstrators who were not a fan, not fans of hers. And apparently through a series of tomatoes, I don't, I don't know, it's like a litter of tomatoes. I don't know what you call the collective noun for tomato, um, but threw a couple of tomatoes and hit her in the hip and uh, one of the the moderators who was kind of speaking near her, um, to whom she handed a tissue because she's nice. Um, but, I mean, it, I think it actually goes to the broader point that we want to talk about, which is, like, the, the divisions and, and what's happening in the German elections.
0: Right. In part because it's what they were chanting as they threw the tomato. Right. Uh, parenthetically, beyond Angela Merkel handing the Kleenex. She wore that outfit the rest of the day, so she was not someone terribly concerned about tomato induced damage well, that's, to, her, to be that's her sure. Her what's awesome it about was it. like
1: red, wasn't it? Like her outfit? Wasn't it like orangey yeah, red? Yeah, that's blended. That's right. It
2: blended. But you could still see the outline of the tomato, right? Tomatoes, right. It was a juicy tomato. I'm just saying
1: if she were wearing white, maybe she would have changed her top. That's <laughs> all I'm saying.
2: Come on, protesters.
0: Pay closer attention to the color of your <laughs> of your target's outfit. But th- they were chanting for the most part, liar, liar, traitor. And the reason they were chanting that is about immigration something we've we touched on before and we'll touch on in the future, because it's the issue in some ways in Europe, about should a country take in Syrian, which means, of course, predominantly uh, Muslim refugees, and if so, what kind of numbers? Angela Merkel has taken them in in huge numbers by the many hundreds of thousands. I think to the shame of the United States, and I mean this very seriously, and you know, Zach, we've both talked, I think, at times about being the descendants of immigrants. The United States under Obama was debating 15,000, 25,000. I mean, that was the number in a country of 300-something million people that we were considering. Meanwhile, Angela Merkel in Germany has taken in 800,000 into a country of 50 million. And, and I think it's it's to her credit we're, and to our shame. We're
1: talking refugees, not broader immigration.
0: Yeah, we're, we're talking refugees. We're talking those fleeing, you know, some of the, the most hor- horrific conditions on the planet. And she has opened her country. And that has been remarkably unpopular for a leader who is herself, for the most part, remarkably popular.
2: Right, and And broader immigration, too. Germany now—and this is a very recent phenomenon— has a higher percentage of foreign-born residents than the United States does. Uh, which is
1: really remarkable.
2: Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. Right, it's hard to think about. We
1: are the immigrant country, right. and Germany is less
2: typically open to... Not. You may remember some things that happened around 1939. <laughs> In um, terms of racial mixing. Right, so what this suggests and what it speaks to is the degree to which Europe's immigration policy, which the EU has liberalized, uh, has upset a lot of people who would describe themselves as Native Europeans, right? They really feel like— By that, they mean white people. Yes, mostly. White Christian.
0: They feel like— Sounds familiar. I can think of another country where people define themselves and the political leaders they want because they're white Christians. I, I, on the tip of my tongue.
2: Anyway. They feel like their country is being taken away from them, right? Again, Again sort of Very sounds, familiar, <laughs> right? But it's—, place it's where. People have often attempted to describe this in terms of some kind of anger at immigrants taking their jobs Economic or an Economic anxiety. <laughs> yes, is the phrase. And that just doesn't track with the data, right? What you find is that the people who are angriest about immigration tend to be people who are solidly middle class or lower middle class, maybe upper middle class in cases. But um, they tend to have median incomes or even higher than median incomes, but low education, Right? So a prototypical example would be a successful plumber. I don't know who threw the tomato at Angela Merkel, but that kind of person would be the person who'd share their views, most likely. And that illustrates that this is really about a sense of anxiety, not about the economy, but about race and national identity. And that's what motivates these really visible, angry protests.
1: Right. What I think is interesting, and I kind of want to get your sense of this because you know Europe way better than I do— is everything that i've read on the german elections it says that that angela merkel is almost certain to win by a massive landslide that it's it's all but a foregone conclusion that she's going to win which to me like i want to know why like if there's so much you know discontent there's so much you know dislike for her and her policies in europe is it really as widespread as it sounds? Because then how is she winning? Or is it just, I don't know, is it that the other parties are, you know, are not organized well and aren't, you know, don't have great candidates? Like, do you know what the dynamic is there?
2: Well, Germany has a tendency of having a very narrow political spectrum. This is a function of uh, the post-World War II reckoning about the rise of the far-right and Nazism. Uh, And so the left-wing opposition... Uh, Merkel, we tend to forget, in the U.S. is a conservative by German standards. Uh, the left-wing opposition has pretty similar immigration views. And in Germany, they have strict laws about racial incitement and anger. And the far-right parties— uh, Especially the and, AFD,
1: the yeah. Alternative for Germany?
2: Yeah, Alternative alternative for Deutschland, whatever. Right. Uh, the The far-right parties not only have difficulties with German laws about hate speech— but they're socially stigmatized for right. those reasons, and uh, they often devolve into infighting um, because it's it's the kind of personality that gravitates towards a far-right party in Germany isn't necessarily, as you may also see in other countries, the most effective political organizer. Or
1: the most harmonious
0: of, yeah. of
2: individuals.
0: I think the other—yeah, that's exactly right. I think what's also interesting about Germany is the main opposition party, the Social Democrats, often they're— acronym is the SPD. They often end up in government with Angela Merkel. Right. So the German elections are September 24th. They're right around the corner. She's likely to win and become one of the longest serving chancellors in, in German history. Her
1: fourth term, right?
0: Yeah, this would be a fourth term. And what's interesting is she was getting for a while attacked pretty harshly by her main opponents, who's a guy named Martin Scholz, who was the former president of the European Parliament. He was seen for a while as a possible genuine challenger. At the most recent debate, he basically landed no punches. He was so soft on her. And the German press, which is typically pretty soft on politics, you know, Zach, you've talked about this consensus, which extends to the German media too, which is for the most part relatively soft on the government, said to him, why were you so soft? Why did you pull all your punches? And then the immediate response was, because he will likely want a job in her government. <laughs> so he's not going to spend like 90 minutes saying, you're terrible, you're terrible, hire me. But there, there was a stat that I came across when we were preparing for this that I found fascinating. And it gets back to a point you were making before about kind of, the narrow band in some ways where Germany finds itself because the far right is a stigmatized, you know, as you pointed out, in society and, and the policy differences on immigration are, for the most part, kind of narrow. More German voters identify as centrist by a very wide margin than any place else in Europe. So the most recent poll was that 80% of Germans say they're centrist. In EU-wide, it's 66%. There's some countries where it's lower, somewhere it's higher, but it's a big difference, 80 versus 66. Do Americans
1: even know what centrist means?
0: Right. So we're, we're, If you poll us. Right, so like we would say... They define themselves as sane, right? Like <laughs> they, they are neither the the nutty left nor the nutty right.
1: Undecided.
0: But it's interesting, right? Like that right. that's so much of the country wants the middle path, right? They don't want to go off of where Merkel has them, which is in those part of the middle path. And one of the pollsters had the following quote, which I just loved. So I wrote down and we'll put on my old man glasses to read it right. This is his view of why so many Germans, 80% of them want to be centrist. This was his view. Their argument is, we can't afford to be polarized because we are surrounded by three madmen, Trump, Erdogan, and Putin. And so he just puts, again, Ouch. it's a reminder of like, the weirdness of our world right now, that the nutty, strongman, madman, boogeyman that German voters may fear are not Vladimir Putin who may invade them. It is not Recep Tayyip Erdogan who has sued them and threatened them and called them Nazis. It's also Donald Trump.
2: And earlier in the campaign, when it looked like Schulz had a chance he would go after uh, Merkel for being too soft on Trump. And he, he being anti-Trump has become a staple of European political campaigns now because he's so unpopular in Europe. And this is really hard to quantify, and I don't know of any rigorous social science that has done it yet, but there's a real sense among researchers that Trump is hurting the European far-right. So when he took office... Steve so there Bannon, is a silver lining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Steve Bannon said Jen. all this stuff about forming an <laughs> Jennifer international— Jennifer
0: Williams, known for optimism.
2: <laughs> Steve Bannon said all this stuff about forming an international far right, right? He was really excited about it. This has been his project for years. He opened up Breitbart offices in London and Israel. For someone and, who hates globalism, that's a fairly globalist outlook, well, I would the, have to say. It's the nationalist international, the right. phrase that people have used. Right. Right, and— it, <laughs> They're winning or, or the victory of the American far right has led to the precise opposite effect as far as we can tell. Other voters look at the US, they look at the chaos of the Trump administration <laughs> and the degree to which it's tanked American public perception internationally, which it has in, in every poll, and they seem to be saying, we don't want that. And hence why the people who are most vocally protesting about immigration in Germany right now aren't the AFD, which is – it's kind of a mess right now, but people throwing tomatoes at Merkel.
0: I also just like that, I think, in the short history of Worldly, that may have been the first time anyone used either hence or hence
2: why. So, Zach, congrats. Sorry, I just talk like that.
1: I think it's really interesting that you pointed out that Schulz, uh, her uh, Angela Merkel's opponent, was, was basically dinging her for being too soft on Trump. I think for American watchers um, who have been watching Merkel's interactions with Trump, I think, especially on the Internet, Merkel has emerged as this this kind of weird, especially, like, feminist kind of icon in how she's kind of manhandled Trump and, like, shut him down. She makes, like, epic faces, like, behind his back or he'll come up to her and she'll just kind of, like, make this awful face just like, no, dude. And I think it's just really interesting that our perception, you know, in some ways is that she's been kind of harsh and pushing back on Trump and not being super chummy. But in her, you know, political world, she's—even just that has been too close to Trump. That's interesting.
0: You know, there was a political headline some months back but that still sticks in my mind when Angela Merkel was here in D.C. where she had some of these incredibly awkward interactions with Donald Trump. First, he wouldn't shake her hands in the Oval Office. Then, at a press conference, he made this weird joke about how she was wiretapped by Obama just like he was. Of course, he wasn't, but—
2: And she actually was. She was. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: So it was both this honest and inaccurate, you know, hashtag Trump. But she has become— the only person, not just willing to stand up to him, but who was willing to, in her own country, say, "I will defend taking in eight hundred thousand desperate Syrians. Come at me." She has not backed <laughs> Come down at on me, that. Bro. She has not softened it. She's basically just said, "This is what I believe. You don't like it? Here I am." And it is remarkable how strong she is as a leader. But it's also remarkable that she's standing up for what America, not long ago, itself stood up for, at least rhetorically. You know, we may never have taken in that many refugees as we talked about a little bit earlier, but. At least verbally and rhetorically, we also believe in these kind of things. And the political headline, which I loved because it was so painful, was leader of the free world meets with Donald Trump. And it's it's like a dagger. And that wasn't incidentally on a column, that was on a a news story. But it it's true. You know, she's taking this tomato induced weapon attack at her because she is standing up for what we would consider liberal lowercase
2: values. Right. And and claiming the mantle.
1: Of of what the U.S. used to be, like, the, the forefront of, you know, the mantle of liberal democracy and liberal democratic ideals.
2: And, and also accepting refugees, right? After the Vietnam War, which, to be fair, was our fault in many ways, um, <laughs> and the Ethiopia-Eritrea War, the U.S. took in a huge number of refugees, a, a really massive proportion of them. And that speaks to the degree to which accepting people in need— was for a very long time one of the country's bedrock values. This wasn't just something that was on the Statue of Liberty or something that people paid lift service to. There really were a lot of people who had been displaced and then America would take them in, Uh, not to mention the big-ticket examples like World War II. And we've been pathetic on that front, and not just because of Donald Trump. Also, frankly, under the Obama administration, not nearly enough Syrian refugees were admitted when millions of people are still living in makeshift camps in the Middle East in bordering countries, when Turkey has taken in so many more refugees, just just a, a percentage that dwarfs the amount that the US couldn't. And, and partially it's because it's a border country. Lebanon, too. Yeah. Which and is be, tiny. tiny. And, and Jordan. This is this is partially a Donald Trump story, but this is also a broader American political story. This country has, for whatever reason, gotten more scared of difference. In terms of immigration, than it was recently, even when the country was frankly more racist as a whole, something has gone wrong with the way that America treats immigration. I'm not sure what it is, but it's gone badly wrong. And
0: and sort of the historical irony of all this is, it's just it's so rich, right? I mean, there's no dancing around the issue of the Holocaust. You know, there's no dancing around the issue of what Germany once was. I mean, even before the Holocaust, it was not a tolerant country. Before it was even Germany, when it was, you know, feuding kind of quasi states and parts of an empire and other, and other things, this was not a country known for tolerance. And America was. And so there's the flip side question, even as, maybe not as painful to us as Americans, but as interesting certainly, to I think, to me, and I don't want to speak for you, but I think probably to you as well, of what went wrong here and what has gone right there. And they've happened to a degree in parallel, and it's staggering. I mean, I think if you were to say post-World War II to someone who'd come through World War II, whether it was a Holocaust survivor, whether it was an American soldier, and you said, hey, Here's the world you're going to see in 70 years. Japan will be our closest ally in Asia. Germany will be our closest ally in Europe. Oh, and by the way, they're going to be the liberal country that takes in refugees and spends money on welfare, and we're not. And no one would believe that. And 70 years in the span of human history is is a blip, and things have turned so completely.
1: I do want to to clarify that when we're talking about America being known for tolerance, I I think what we're talking about— I just want to make it clear we're talking specifically about taking in kind of refugees from different parts of the world. I, I think there are probably many people of color and otherwise who would probably not think that America, especially in the Jim Crow era, <laughs> South was particularly well known for its tolerance of, of racial identity. I mean, and even you know, leading up to World War II, like there was a you know massive degree of Nazi sympathy and and you know anti-Semitism in you know high levels of both the U.S. government and U.S. industry and business. So, you know, not to say that we've always been this, you know, shining city on a hill that's perfect. I just want to make it clear that we're not saying that at all. But we are talking about comparative in terms of, you know, taking in kind of broader, bigger swaths of of refugees and immigrants.
0: And and I, I think it's also just interesting to me, political expression in other countries. So we have an aggressive, obviously, an aggressive free press here that Doesn't seem to be having—during the campaign, there were all those moments where we thought, ah, the U.S. press has uncovered something. This will sink Donald Trump. And, of course, it didn't. And then in other countries like Germany, where there should be things to debate legitimately. I mean, there should be a genuine debate about, should Germany take in 800,000 Syrian refugees? There should be a debate about, how do you pay for all of it? There isn't. So you've got media that actually, in a country where there are things to debate in a serious way, doesn't. Media here that debates those serious things— does, but has no impact. And you end up with Angela Merkel, who, barring something majorly unforeseen, will become not only the longest-serving German leader, I think, since World War II, not only the most powerful woman in the world without question, but the counterweight to Donald Trump. I mean, I agree there, there should
2: be a debate in Germany about the number of refugees they take in. It should be whether they're taking in the right amount or more.
1: And I, I do like Deutsche Welle. I, I think they, they're they good journalists, DW
0: shout out to a possibly obscure German newspaper website nicely done Jen.
1: I'm just saying they do good journalism. And I don't want to slam all German media. yeah, I'm yeah, a fan. Yeah, they do I, really good journalism yeah, especially I agree in, with that. in terrorism and counterterrorism. They do incredible journalism. and they anyway, just saying
0: so I do want to close with this. Oh Man, I like
2: Der Spiegel a lot too.
0: yeah there, Der Spiegel's good too. There, there have been uh, a couple of changes in Israel since we last talked about Israel. Uh, Sarah Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu's wife may soon be indicted. There are more reports that Benjamin Netanyahu himself, Israel's prime minister, may also be indicted. So that story has been advancing since we last talked about it. But that isn't why I wanted to mention it. You know, we try to be transparent, both at Vox.com, both in what we write, and obviously now on Worldly. We try to talk through Islamizan on air about how we get to the topics. We also use the email account we have, which is worldly at Vox.com. We try to respond to every email, and we take them very seriously. And after last week when we talked about Israel, we got a barrage of very thoughtful emails, um, which I'm grateful to the people who took time to write them. And one of the people who I'm grateful to is Ori Neer who sent an email that pointed out factual errors. Um, they happened to be ones that were made by me, so I, I take full ownership of them. But I want to correct them for the record, first off. I want to also thank Ori for pointing them out. Secondly, and I'll say to our listeners, if you hear something that seems off, flag it to us. We will take it seriously. Uh, and if we get it wrong, we'll correct it. And so I do want to correct for the record three things. Um, I mentioned Gilad Sher, who's a relatively well-known security analyst in Israel. I wrongly said he had worked for Benjamin Netanyahu. He had worked for Eid Barak, one of Netanyahu's predecessors. So he is an important man. His background is as a national security advisor, but it was to Eid Barak, not Benjamin Netanyahu. I understated the population of Israel. I said it was around 7 million or so. It's actually closer to 8.5 million. So it is a bigger country numerically than I'd said. And the third, which is slightly more nuanced— I had said that the Gaza Strip was once controlled by Jordan. In a technical sense, it was not. It was controlled by Egypt, by other countries, by Turkey. Jordan had enormous influence, but did not control it. Uh, Ori pointed that out as well. With that, I do want to thank, as always, Peter Leonard, our producer, Julie Bogan, our producer who is also sitting in. We take emails seriously, so please email us at uh, worldlyadvox.com. We will respond. We will take them into account as we think about segments. If we make a mistake, we'll correct them. If you like what, we, what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, review at Apple Podcasts, Google, SoundCloud, Stitcher. You can find us pretty much everywhere. Subscribe, say nice things, hopefully. And we will see you all next week.
2: Bye, guys. Bye.